This is Maine Currents Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. It's the third Tuesday of the month in an election season that will not die. So once again, it's time for our Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents. And we are joined once again by Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU, and Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. Welcome back, everybody. Good to be here. Hello. Hello, everyone. So I was joking. Post-election, right. I was joking uh, just as we were getting ready to start that I really just thought about starting today's program with what the heck just happened and just let you all go at it. But we'll break it down a little bit more than that. There's been so much in the past month since the last time we all talked. Let's start local and then move to national. Uh, with the outcomes of the elections here in Maine, any surprises to any of you? Uh, any comments on how any of the races turned out? I mean, it's hard not to ask Amy right off the tick what happened with the polling. <laughs> because I think we all expected a much stronger um, showing from Democratic candidates than what actually resulted. Right. What do you think, Amy? Uh, well, that's something that, you know, polling companies and pollsters are trying to figure out. There's a couple of different ideas that that folks are looking at when the polls had problems in 2016. A lot of the reason was that a lot of the polls didn't adequately wait for education, so they didn't get uh, enough representation from people who were non-college educated voters. Um, I think that in some places there were late shifts, which is always something that can happen. But there's some discussion that there's a kind of response bias, meaning some people just won't get involved in polls as much. And there are people, there appear to be people with lower levels of social trust. And those people disproportionately tend to be Trump supporters. So we could have had this underrepresentation of Trump supporters, and then that ends up affecting polling for other races as well. I mean, certainly in, in the main house, even the down ticket races, the Republicans had, I think, a, a pretty surprising showing. And people maybe didn't expect them to do as well as they did. I've heard well, that, that rumors that Republicans are encouraging each other on social media to respond to polls the wrong way, just to put a wrench in the works. Is there any evidence that that's actually happening at all? I don't know if it really is happening very much. I mean, for one thing, how often do you get called for a real poll? We get called for all kinds of people telling us to go out and vote. You know, these, you know, that's a pretty normal thing to have happen. But the average person really does not get polled, you know, because you're, you're talking about sample sizes that say have a pretty good sample size in Maine would be like maybe 700 people. And you got 1.3 million people. Of course, not all of them are voters, but still, I mean, you're just not very likely to get hit by a poll. So I don't think that is necessarily, but there is this response bias thing that's going on. I mean, the main results really were so split because yeah, the, the Democrats lost some number of seats in the house. I don't know the exact number, maybe someone else here does, but also gain seats in the, in the state Senate. And then mm -hmm. you have, you know, Biden did better than Clinton did, 
But then, of course, we had Susan Collins reelected. And then also uh, Gideon did better, not Gideon, um, Golden did better than he had mm -hmm. previously, but also not as high as the polls were showing before. So, so uh, you know, what else do you have to look at beforehand but polls? You know, otherwise you're just guessing. I, I've said, and I said this to the Bangor Daily News editorial board recently, I don't see a great benefit to a lot of polling for the public as a whole. Like what mm -hmm. is really the point? You decide how you want to vote based on who you support and why should you really pay attention to polling, especially when, if you have a ranked choice race. So, you know? mm -hmm. So I was just going to mention on that in some, some, in some countries, they prohibit, you know, polling from being released. Um, well, I'm not sure if it's conducted or released, but they prohibit it within a certain blackout window before the election. And, you know, I never understood that until these last few elections. And seemingly people's decisions whether or not to go vote can be swayed by what polls they're seeing. So it's an interesting if, For example, if they think their candidate is going to be an overwhelming favorite, they may stay home. They think their vote's not needed type of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that could have affected things in 2016. And if we want to go back to the most famous blatant polling failure, the 1948 election, you know, Dewey Truman, uh, there's definitely evidence that people stayed home who were Dewey supporters because, you know, everyone said that that Dewey was going to win. And I mean, that one though, I mean, we don't have anywhere like the polling that we do now um, in, in terms of the amount or even, well, I was going to say the accuracy. <laughs> it doesn't look that great right now, but you had polling firms in 1948 who stopped polling in September. They just said, well, stable race. We don't have any reason to assume it's going to change. People don't change their minds. You know, so that it's a it's a different time for sure. I think it's important to know oh, that God. the uh, margin of error that is reported on polls is statistical uncertainty, but does not include the uncertainties related to things like the, the bias that might be in the way people respond to pollsters. And that's the reason why the maximum number of people that are polled even for a national uh, race is a, 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 about between one and 2,000 people because polling more people than that will reduce the statistical uncertainty to a spot that is more precise than the other uncertainties. In other words, the uncertainties about the you know, sampling, for instance, uh, whether you're reaching educated voters, non-educated voters, et cetera, are greater uncertainties than the sampling uncertainties, from statistical uncertainties from the sampling of uh, uh, running the poll. Polling more I, people I, creates less, uh, creates more of a margin of error, you're saying? Isn't, I mean, yeah. that's usually right. the opposite, so right? If you poll more people, then the statistical margin of error decreases. In other mm -hmm. words, the typical poll will say this is plus or minus three right. percentage points or plus or minus four percentage points. Um, maybe some of the main polls, which only poll uh, 600, 700 people, might be plus or minus 5%. Um, you could poll 10,000 people and get it down to plus or minus 2%, but that's the statistical uncertainty only, and the other uncertainties overwhelm the statistical uncertainty, which is why they don't go to the added expense That's of polling more people. Mm -hmm. I, I think that concept of 
the bias in the way people answer is an important one. And particularly when we know that there's this tremendous difference politically between what I'll call the educated versus not the levels of education of the voters differ so much. The pollsters themselves, when, when the telephone rings and I pick it up and somebody's asking me questions about the upcoming election, the person on the phone is a person who's more educated about the upcoming election than, than I may be. And consequently, there is immediately a, a, a social difference between the person asking the questions and the person responding to the questions. And I, my guess is that that's what influences that, that bias. I mean, there's all kinds of other response biases too, like right after a debate, if, it, if someone is seen as having done very well, a particular candidate is seen as having done very well, then the supporters of that individual will respond more to polls. So you'll see these, these debate bounces, but it's really an artifact of response bias a lot of times which is why they fade, you know, like that you don't have the same enthusiasm for answering the question over time, uh, you know, like three days later or a week later, people aren't as moved by that, whether they're willing to answer the question. So there's all kinds of weird things like that. And some of them we know. So like I always tell people, don't pay too much attention to these post-debate polls because you're going to get that weird response bias out of it. But other times it's harder to say. And if it really is an issue of social trust and social distrust, that's a harder thing to, to deal with. Um, but, you know, I think it's got to follow what the, the really the best firms that like, like Pew Research Center doesn't just do polling. They do a lot of research on polling and they often are, you know, uh, really in the front of trying to figure out what to do to go forward if there's, you know, going to be a future for polling. The other thing, no, I was going to change the subject if you're ready. Well, the only other thing I'll say is just that, you know, it's very hard to predict turnout a lot of times. And that's really another issue is, you know, you don't know, because if you're doing a poll about an opinion, there's all kinds of issues with those polls tools with question wording, but you don't have to also figure out how many people are going to do what. And that's the thing about voting is you get very, we had very high turnout and you, it's not necessarily predictable. Um, and Republicans did do an awful lot of door knocking and did it for a long time. And that was the one thing beforehand that I thought was a really big open question was how many, if they really were going to increase their turnout from their folks and they, and they did, but Democrats also turned out. Well, that was that was exactly where I was going to go. I mean, it was record high turnout on both sides and um, Republican turnout. It wasn't just the Democrats. Republican turnout was also very high. Um, and then sort of adding to that the fact that um, Susan Collins got maybe 50,000 more votes than President Trump got. And there was some ticket splitting in there. Um, you know, Republican voters were not discouraged from participating at all. No, absolutely not. And they had done a very long time of doing all this door knocking mobilization and Democrats didn't want to do it for a long time because of COVID. So, you know, that, I think that had some sort of impact. And, you know, if you look at Collins's vote, 
it was about the same number of votes as she got in 2014. It was very, very close. But in 2014, she got 69% of the vote. And this time she got 51% of the vote, which tells you how high the turnout was, really. Of course, that was a midterm election. It's a presidential year. So that's part of it. Yeah. Did any of you hear of any election uh, polling place issues, irregularities, as they're often being called now here in Maine? Take it, Will. I see Anne kicking this, this over to me. Um, so the league, we ran a um, election observation program on election day, and we had um, 103 volunteers at um, 162 polling places that made 311 uh, total observations. And, you know, I was up in Piscataquis County, Somerset County all day, just popping into polling places in various towns up there and seeing how things were going. So we had a lot of... Um, live updates on the ground. And I know, you know, other organizations, political parties were doing similar observation. And I would say generally, it was a very, very smooth election day. The, you know, the issues that we heard about, I would say, you know, on this, on the scale of all of the potential issues we'd heard concerns about, you know, with, you know election intimidation, disenfranchisement, I would, I would say those were not substantial issues at all. The issues were things like at some polling places, particularly in some small towns, like the election workers weren't wearing masks or some, some polling places. I'm sorry, you faded out there a little bit. The election oh, wearers sorry. weren't wearing masks, did you say? Yes, they weren't wearing masks in some, some polling places in smaller towns. Um, and then other things like some, some towns maybe didn't have optimal setups for COVID, you know, with distancing and capacity requirements, all that. And so we saw, we did see some lines in some places that I would consider excessive, you know, hour, two hour plus lines, but those were few and far between. And generally, I think in part because of all the work done to, you know, promote absentee voting, promote um, kind of spreading out when people are actually voting, I think election day itself went very, very smoothly. Anyone else want to weigh in on that before I switch subjects, well, I, Ralph Chapman? I did. I did hear in the in the news media reported on a uh, actually voter fraud case uh, in Orono, and I think that was one of two uh, documented cases in the country. I think there was one in Pennsylvania, but um, I, I thought that was uh, uh, of interest primarily because of what what we've mentioned on this program before that the actual rate of fraud is uh, vanishingly small. And so when there is an actual case, uh, and, and the, in this particular case in Orono, the vote was not counted. Uh, the the uh, uh, people at the uh, polling place, uh, the, the town clerk uh, understood that this was a problematic uh, ballot when it was turned in and it was not counted. So I, I think there's a, I think that's an illustration of how well the system works when, when a, an actual fraud case is picked out, uh, the ballot is not counted and, uh, and it's referred to prosecution. Yeah, the well, signature didn't match. And that's what the fraud was, a signature, it was somebody else's It was, it was uh, roommates that were arguing with each other, although they did have different political views, evidently, and one sent in the other roommate's ballot. Um, and, you know, this, because she, she's the roommate who signed the back of the envelope, didn't have obviously the same signature as the actual voter whose ballot it was. That's how they caught it. 
Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you know, when the actual voter goes to vote and they see a ballot's already been been cast, too, that's another, you know, easy way to go back and check and see uh, what happened. I think in this particular case, one roommate moved away after right. having requested a, a mail right. ballot and, and mm -hmm. informed the town clerk that her address had changed. And... Uh, the town clerk said that the, ba the ballot had already been mailed, so the person who moved voted in person in front of the town clerk, and then the mailed ballot came back with a with signature that didn't Something match. like that, yeah. yeah. It's, it's so vanishingly rare, which is... Yeah. Plus, they got prosecuted. Away, yeah, I mean, exactly. there's, a big, there's a big downside to doing I mean, that, right? I mean, Good yeah, I know, I actually know the voter whose ballot was stolen, who oddly enough, happens to be my academic advisee. And she told me about it before this was announced. So yeah, it was, she, it was a, it was not, it wasn't a good situation, but yeah, it's very, very rare. Yeah. I, I, uh, the governor of Texas, I believe it is, has offered a million dollars if you can prove voter. Mm -hmm. and the yeah, only Patrick, Lieutenant Governor. Oh, the, yes, the lieutenant governor. And then uh, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania has been tweeting at him at two, about two cases he knows of, one in Pennsylvania, one in Arizona, which are both cases of Trump voters trying to vote twice. One of them, this guy goes in and votes, and then he goes back out and he puts on sunglasses and he came in and tried to vote a second <laughs> time in the name of his son. I mean, it sounds like a bad movie. <laughs> Well, yeah. yeah, exactly, right? Uh, speaking of a bad movie, we have a bad movie going on with a lack of concession. Uh, we Washington. do. Let's, but, let's hold just a second before we uh, move on to the national, though. I, I definitely yeah. want to uh, talk about that as much as possible. But before we move away from what's happening in the state, Ralph, while, you're, uh, while you've got your mic on there, can you comment, and anybody else can weigh in too, but since you're a former state representative, go to you first on this and what's happening with the state legislature. And I know the state, my state representative here is um, facing a recount, even though the vote wasn't even close. It's one of those recounts where they're having to pay uh, to have the recount. But uh, so there, and there are two, I think, in Waldo County. The other one is a recount because it was within that margin where the recount is something that the state covers. But uh, overall, how did things, and that actually count, I think, is happening this Friday because somebody at the Secretary of State's office had COVID last Friday when it was supposed to happen. So the, the recounts, one thing that should be understood is the recounts rarely, rarely change uh, the numbers enough to flip the decision. So, well, let me rephrase it. Um, the recounts almost always change the actual numbers of votes that somebody gets because there are votes that are allowed to be counted at a recount that are not allowed to be counted uh, by the ballot clerks on election night. Uh, that's, those are miscast ballots. And during a recount, if you can determine the intent of the voter, even though it was a miscast ballot, you're allowed to count it. So for example, on, uh, on my first time, uh, running um, it was uh, the I was the apparent winner on election night by 29 votes and it uh, triggered an automatic recount and and uh, during the recount process uh, the military ballots were awarded and uh, uh, I was awarded a, a couple of miscast ballots uh, 
the end result was that I won by 35 votes uh, rather than 29. I picked up a total of six votes during the recount. The fact that the recounts will change a few votes is, is normal. Uh, the typical way that uh, the recounts change the vote totals is for those ballots that are not counted by hand, but are counted by machines uh, that are looking for marks on the page and somebody doesn't make the mark dark enough and the machine doesn't pick it up, uh, but the, the hand count will pick it up. Those are the types of changes that happen during a recount. Uh, in my district, um, all of the towns uh, counted by hand so that uh, they were, I'm sorry, five of the six towns that I represented counted by hand. So there was uh, the hand counts by the ballot clerks in the local towns have, are very good and uh, are repeated exactly by the hand count at the recount. Um, when I look to see what the what the difference is in the number of votes. And I think the closest recount uh, in Waldo County uh, is, is separated by something like 30 or 40 volts, uh, somewhere in that range. So I don't expect any change from the recounts. And I don't think the Secretary's office expects any, any change from the recounts, but it does help uh, establish uh, confidence in the system when, when you can do a recount and get the same answer, so to speak. Uh, I, I, oh, go ahead. I, one other thing is relative to the legislative races is a type of election that occurs at, after the makeup of the new legislature is determined is uh, the election for the legislative leaders. The reason why this is important is that the legislative leaders, so-called leaders, are the people who actually can decide which bills will pass and which will not pass in the legislature. They have enough control over the flow of things and the, the loyalty that their caucuses will follow uh, is such that they actually control what happens in the legislature. And so there are 10, 10 of the legislators are what's called the legislative council. And that's the president of the Senate and the speaker of the house. And then the floor leaders and assistant floor leaders for each party in each chamber. That's a total of 10 people. And we know who those 10 people are going forward. And we, uh, I, I don't need to take the time perhaps now, but if we want, we can come back to who those people are and, and uh, what to expect from that. The other thing that's happening is the election of the constitutional officers on December 2nd. Um, so most of those offices, the attorney general and the state treasurer have incumbents who are expected to be reelected, but the secretary of state, Matt Dunlap, is termed out. And so that office is open and there are six candidates running for that. The league and a bunch of others are um, hosting a candidate forum for those six candidates tonight at 5 p.m. If I may just plug that if you want to get well, to know. It'll, it'll be a backwards plug. When <laughs> oh, no, this does air today. Yes, yes, yes. We'll be airing at four o'clock. And so right after this finishes, uh, not to drive people away from WERU, but if you are so inclined is that going to be a Facebook live event or Zoom or how is how can people watch that? It's it's on Zoom and there's registration links that available with all the you know organizing associate organizations that's legal women voters, main conservation voters, and I think fifteen others. So so lwvme.org. Mm -hmm. Yes, and then if you go to our events tab, there should be a sign up link there, and it'll also be recorded.
All right. I want to just jump in here real quick before we move on. You're listening to Maine Currents, the Elections 2020 edition on WERU. I'm Amy Brown. I'm talking with Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU, and Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. So moving into national, you started to talk about this a little bit earlier, uh, Ralph, with Trump refusing to uh, concede the election. Uh, He's also taking legal action in several states, uh, not hearing as much about it, definitely not hearing about it on Trump's Twitter feed, but uh, case after case is being dismissed by judges as they're brought up. Are there any challenges pending that do have a possibility of changing the outcome of the election? Anyone have any thoughts about that? Well, so far, the the Trump campaign has done really, really poorly in court. They're just, you know, there's all kinds of things that the president says that some of his allies say that I see uh, Trump supporters say on social media, including from friends of mine, that are just not true. I mean, they're just not true. You have to, when, when you go into court, you can say whatever, you know, you can say whatever you want in public, obviously, free speech. But when you go into court, you have to have facts, you have to have evidence, and it just has not been there. And they've just, the Trump campaign has overwhelmingly lost its cases. You know, they are not showing fraud. They said they had all these affidavits. They turned out, first of all, a lot of them weren't actual affidavits which have to be sworn statements. They were just people filled things out on a website, like, you know, an open form and sent it in. So they don't have really a sworn statement. They don't have backing. And then a lot of the people who come to these proceedings, there's no there there. You know, like, like there really was- Conference at the Four Seasons, uh, what is that, lawn and garden <laughs> supply across from a sex shop? Right. But I mean, you know, even when it comes to going into a court, so like there was uh, one proceeding, I, I think this might have been in Pennsylvania, I, I, I'm not 100%, where the, the attorneys for the Trump campaign were saying, oh, we weren't allowed to have people observe the vote counting, which is one of the big complaints. And uh, the judge said, well, how many people were there? And did you have people there, you know, who, and, and the attorney replies, I mean, this is just unbelievable. There were a non-zero number of people there. (laughs) So in other words, there were more than nobody or no, you know, (laughs) there was someone there and he's, and he's like, well, what are you complaining about? So, I mean, there really were observers and, you know, a lot of the things that are being said, just they're not true or, you know, they've been debunked and you have to show, show. And then some of the cases besides these specific like fraud claims are things like, well, if they're asking either to not certify an entire state there, I don't know if this one has been tossed yet, but there was one where the Trump campaign was asking to not certify Pennsylvania's electoral votes at all. And there was another, there have been other ones where they just don't want to certify certain counties. So let's not certify the two most democratic counties in Wisconsin, the one where Milwaukee is and the one where Madison is. Well, you know, don't certify those vote counts. So like those things are just, they just don't seem to be going anywhere. You have lawyers who are pulling out of representation 
I mean, you could sort of just go on. And so far, it hasn't been a, a, a successful operation to be understated about it. Mm-hmm. Does anyone think aware of whether Giuliani's actually in court presenting any of these cases? I mean, you know the press conference I'm referring to with the four seasons. They thought it was going to be at the hotel. It right. ended up like I saw an update on Giuliani today, which was fascinating. This is kind of in the whole legal team's withdrawing, which to me has been a big, you know, a big aspect of this has been, you know, legal teams withdrawing and different people coming in. But um, there was a hearing set for today in Pennsylvania, and there was one local attorney who was supposed to, you know, testify on behalf of the Trump campaign, litigate on behalf of the Trump campaign. And then Rudy Giuliani today requested to be to present in this case. And I, you know, I, I asked a friend of mine who's a lawyer, I'm like, you know, this is really unusual, right? And he said, this friend of mine said to me, he's like, yeah, like in a normal case, you know, like the judge would probably deny this motion. It really depends on if the judge wants to make a show of this, um, whether he accepts and like, it's just, you know, I, election litigation, I take it seriously. And I think we like, you know, we're seeing like a recount in Georgia that while very unlikely to change the results has, you know, uncovered a batch of votes, votes that weren't counted the first time. It's important to go back and make sure everything was counted. That's why we don't certify on election night. But the cases are, as Amy said, you know, they just strike me as very meritless and like the legal, the legal strategy just doesn't seem to be, you know, coordinated in any way beyond to so, you know, doubt about the election. Yeah, it's a, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, when I talk the lawyers I talk to, they, they say things like, why are, you know, you could have lawyers who are going to be sanctioned for filing frivolous lawsuits because you can, people think, oh, well, go ahead and file a, a lawsuit. But if there really is no basis or n- nothing very provable, you're wasting the court's time. And who pays and, for this? Does this come out of the campaign funds or does this come out of, or is the U.S. taxpayer paying for this? Well, it should be camp. It should be campaign funds that are paying for it, but you're still using a public resource, which is the time of a, a judge and the judge's staff and, you know, public facilities. And there there's in the bar, you know, in the, in legal ethics and, and in the law, there are, you can have penalties for f- filing frivolous lawsuits. And Luther, jump in here. You're going to say something. And then when you're going, uh, well, to, say, I, I, you're going to say, can you move into uh, <laughs> starting what the next steps are and getting the uh, transition going? Well, I was just going to, um, you know, change the subject slightly and say the other thing that didn't happen that we were all concerned about was massive postal delays. And I think, um, you know, here in Maine, we've heard onesie twosies, a couple here, a couple there, but nothing um wholesale and i mean i just have to say half of that has got to be maybe maybe more than half maybe all of it has to be chalked up to the professionalism of ordinary workers at the u.s postal service who really just did it regardless of what their um leadership might have been telling them to do although there were some that it appears i mean i don't know that weren't maybe delivered and in Florida and some other and some other places, and ultimately that will have to be examined. Right, I think yeah. there's a court order saying that they needed to go and, and clear out all of their stashes of ballots in some places. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, yeah, before, actually, before we get into like the next step, the certifying the votes in the Electoral College, just real quickly, uh, the Georgia Secretary of State, who's a Republican, uh, is saying that Lindsey Graham has been implying in his conversations with him that he should just toss out some of the votes. Uh, he's come on CNN and possibly other media saying that. He also says that he and his wife, who has COVID right now, have been getting death threats from people who don't like the way the election results are turning out in Georgia. Um, so I want anybody who can to just weigh in and say, where the heck do we go from here? Like, is this rock bottom in electoral it's, politics? Is this system sustainable with this kind of whatever happening? And, you know, can Lindsey Graham just, maybe he worded it in such a way that he can't get in trouble, but doesn't it seem like somebody trying to imply that should be investigated for tampering with the elections? So this all relates to the question of whether this is a danger to our democracy, the way the election is going, the way the uh, loser is not conceded, uh, the way that there's uh, frivolous lawsuits being filed. And yes, it's a danger to our democracy. One of the things that I always come back to, having looked at the constitutions of both the state and the country in some detail relative to the issue of impeachment, uh, is the oath of office and why is it there and what does it mean? And it's very clear to me, uh, but it was not clear at all to my legislative colleagues uh, when I was in the state legislature, that the purpose of the uh, uh, oath of office is, is because it is not the citizenry that's responsible for the maintenance of our constitutional democracy. It's the responsibility of elected officials and officials appointed by elected officials. And so everyone who swears an oath or makes an affirmation to support the Constitution as we do in Maine or to defend and uphold the Constitution as fed, is done at the federal level, all of those people have a responsibility to our democracy. And the frivolous lawsuits, the uh, lack of conceding are damaging to that democracy. And I think we should call it out and point out that these are, in my opinion, impeachable offenses by everyone who is not helping to uh, defend our democracy by insisting that the, the votes that be counted and that the result be enacted. Mm -hmm. I will just say that I, I find it very concerning, less for what I anticipate happening over the next two months, but what I anticipate the groundwork it sets for the future. I mean, the thing I come back to is that this wasn't an especially close election in some ways. You know, the margin, the presidential margin was 7 million votes, it looked like it was going to be. Um, and, you know, yes, in the, there were a few states and the margin because the Electoral College comes down to 60,000 votes or so. But even then, you know, that's not that's not in this margin where you're talking about a 2000 situation for it. But it's still, it's just a, it's a playbook where the whole purpose is to cast doubt on the whole system, you know. And I, when I think of like, you know, the Secretary of State of Georgia has done, you know, a great job running this election. All of our election officials across the country, I think they, the things that, there's no way to 
coverage, so it's a compelling story. But the things that didn't go wrong with this election in this unprecedented time is the real story. And it's amazing. And that's why it just makes me so saddened, you know, really just like on a personal level to see all this doubt and all of this um, delegitimization happening because this was such a successful election in so many ways. So let's, uh, let me just say again, you're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM, the elections 2020 edition. And once again, my guests are Ann Luther and Will Hayward, who you just heard from, from the League of Women Voters of Maine, former state representative Ralph Chapman and Professor Amy Freed, chair of the political science department at the University of Maine. And they are all well suited to take us through the next steps of this uh, process, starting with, I believe, the next uh, step is supposed to be, or should have already happened, the certification of the election results. We have a Trump appointee refusing to certify the elections, which is a separate question of how do we have political appointees with that kind of power? Like, how can that happen? I guess it never has before because most people, there are things happening now that most people would never consider in the past have just doing just because they wouldn't. Well, I mean, technically, the election results have not been certified in Maine either. I mean, Maine has 20 days after election day to certify the results. That recount is happening on Friday. And so I think we all expect that Maine election results will be certified on the 23rd on time next week. Other states have similar type deadlines. The person at the federal level that you're talking about, um, you know, I guess at the end of the Clinton administration, when it was Bush v. Gore and the results of the election really were not known, you know, um, that they held up the transition until there was a clear resolution of the election outcome. So that kind of stalling has happened before, but never in a circumstance where the winner is clearly acknowledged, as Will said. I mean, there's no question who won. Um, so this is just, you know, more foot dragging obfuscation right. and whatever right. what, what can be done about it i i mean i've i've seen you know people say that the house should put the gsa administrator who's actually the person who makes this um decision should you know hold hearings and find out why um why this hasn't happened um and i think you know there would be there's hesitancy obviously you know to do that people don't want to you know make this even more contentious, but I think there is a real urgency to this. Um, it's actually certifying, it unlocks presidential transition funds right. for the new administration. And there's an urgency, you know, both from what we learned from the 2000 experience was that the 9-11 commission found that delay in the transition actually did, you know, weaken our national security. And then, you know, we're in a pandemic right now. There's vaccines out there that they're trying to ramp up distribution into, you know, the tens of millions and the government's going to play a huge role in this. And the, you know, incoming government of on January 20th can't communicate with the current government. They're not allowed to until the GSA administrator signs this, um, signs this document. And so it's a real serious problem beyond just, you know, the election and like some form of, oh, they're saying that Biden won now. You know, it's, it's our nation. It's the health of our country. So can anything yeah. be done about this one particular person refusing to certify the results? Can, I mean, does it have to happen before the electoral college meets? 
Well, it doesn't have to really happen. I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, the uh, Biden transition team uh, could sue in some way and try to force this to happen. Um, I don't think they want to do that and they're trying to work around it. But every transition is important. Uh, there's a book uh, that um, it took me a while to get around to reading because it came out a few years ago, but it's called The Fifth Risk by uh, Michael Lewis. And it's about, the, it's about the transition, actually the last transition and the importance of transitions and certain focuses on certain agencies in the federal government that people don't necessarily fully understand what they do. Like the Department of Energy, a huge part, think of what it does is deal with nuclear, the safety of uh, nuclear waste and, you know, and, and nuclear, you know, it's like this certain agencies that have some really major responsibilities and that it's a very technical sort of thing too, to know how to do it properly. And there's civil servants there, of course, who have been working on it, but you also need to have good people in charge who understand it and, and can deal with these, these uh, very difficult, you know, potentially deadly risks. And, you know, the Trump administration did, incoming Trump administration didn't really take a lot of this stuff terribly seriously um, in their transition. Now, I think the the thing is, we know the Biden people will take it very seriously, and they are going to have people who are very skilled and who probably have been involved in the federal government before. So that mitigates some of it. But as Will said, you know, rightfully, you know, we have all of these issues right now with the pandemic and getting the vaccine distribution. So it's it's a problem. I think they are trying to do workarounds though with meet the Biden folks with meeting with other, you know, outside experts. Does uh, it, I will say, I will let, me say just, wait, let me go back to this question, though, just real quickly, because I'm not sure we got any answer to that. Do the election results have to be certified before the Electoral College meets? Can they do? That's, that's what I was gonna, actually going to yeah. jump in and help resolve, which is that the, you know, GSA administrator signing off on this has nothing to do with the actual, um, you know, results being certified in any legal sense um, of, because, you know, the Electoral College is set out in our constitution, each state sends its electors, um, and then they vote on December 15th. Um, and that that designates, you know, who the next president will be, and they actually don't technically count those votes until early January. But this is all outlined in the constitution, and it's all done through, you know, states certifying their own election results. So I see, Amy, you've got something to add. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is actually based, you know, there's things in the constitution, but there's the 1887 Electoral Count Act, which got passed after the total mess of the compromise of 1877, which I could get into if anyone wants, but uh, which was actually incredibly, one of the most consequential things in American history and non known things in American history. I, I keep telling people about it. But yeah, the Electoral, the electoral Count Acts uh, set the safe, a safe harbor date of six days before the Electoral College meets. And the Electoral College meets, according to it, I, I looked this up recently. I didn't know this until then. So don't give me too much credit. But anyway, the Electoral College, according to the law, meets the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. Sort of like you know, one of those weird things, like with election day being the, the, the Tuesday after the first Monday. 
in November. So, uh, so it's six days ahead. So this year, it's the Safe Harbor Day is December 8th. The electors vote December 14th. Mm -hmm. And the joint session of Congress counts the electoral votes January 6th. So you're going to ask me next if you, what's the safe harbor date? What does that mean? The safe harbor date is basically, that's when basically if states have certified those electors that they have certified, you know, based on the certification are the ones that are going to be sent forward. If they don't certify, then it, there's the potential for some mischief making like a state legislature picking a different slate of electors. And um, in the 1876 election, uh, there were three states that sent dueling slates of electors, that, which is you know, kind of what this is meant to, meant to prevent that same kind of thing happening again. And there was a Supreme Court decision recently about faithless electors can somebody explain what that means and how that may come into play this time? I mean, that I, prevent I, shenanigans? I, I, I can take a shot at it. I, 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 I think this I understand this case pretty well. Um, it was about whether states, you know, some states, so I'll, I'll explain a faithless elector first, just very briefly. It's, you know, the electors are designated when for each party, you know, like, um, Oh gosh, this is this is so tough to explain. But basically, you know, the electors are the people who actually cast the votes in the electoral college, and they're sent as a slate depending on which candidate wins. But those can those electors are not technically obligated to vote for that um, the candidate that they've been sent on the slate of under you know under the constitution. So we saw this in 2016. There were a couple of electors who were sent, you know from states that Hillary Clinton won on, on that slate that voted for, I don't remember if one of them voted for Bernie, but I think a couple of them voted for like, essentially write-in candidates almost as a protest. Um, but many states have laws against their electors doing this or laws that punish, that penalize electors for doing this, you know, fines or other punishment. Um, and so the Supreme Court case earlier this year um, was, it was a unanimous decision and it found that states do have the ability to punish those electors. Um, and so I think, I don't, I don't know a lot of the details beyond that, but my understanding was that it in some sense affirmed that states can direct electors to vote a certain way. And, you know, if elector, and if an elector were to vote a different way than, um, you know, slate they'd sent forward to bid on, they could be replaced with an elector who would vote for, say, you know, in 2016, Hillary Clinton. Um, so that's my understanding of the case. My understanding is it doesn't resolve, you know, if the legislature decided to go around and send its own slate of electors, but it does mean that like in like a 270 to 268 election, there could be some backstop electors defecting unexpectedly. So how are the electors chosen? Who are those people? And uh, you're saying a state legislator, state legislature could just send their own batch if they wanted to, to vote differently than the outcome of that state's election? Well, if they tried, there would certainly be, you know, legal challenges to that as well. I mean, the, the, the Constitution does say that states get, decide, uh, you know, how electors are picked. That's what lets Maine split its electoral votes, right? We, we do that. 
Um, and it used to, and in the beginning of the Republic in the early, up till the early 19th century, the most common way electors were picked were by state legislatures. It wasn't even through elections and then different states did it different ways. Some of them had districts like Maine does. Some didn't, some used part of it from the state legislature, some did to got it from votes. So there's been a big variety since the constitution, you know, came into force. Uh, but right now, the states also do have laws about how the electors are picked. So if they were to say, well, we have a law that they're picked from the election <laughs> and uh, either we split it like made in Nebraska does or one, you know, one candidate's going to it's winner take all, um, you know, they'd have to have a very good reason not to follow that law. So if they decided to go ahead and try to pick their own electors, they, they'd be in trouble. This kind of came up this year when it looked like there might be that there won't be one state that would be determinative, kind of like 2000, where Florida was the one that really mattered. And let's say it was Pennsylvania. And there was a bit, so it's a lot of electoral votes. And people are having arguments about fraud and, you know, whatever, you can't quite certify it or you certify it. And there's ongoing contests after certification challenging the results so that the state legislature would say, okay, we can't figure this all out. It's a total mess. We think it's fraud. We're going to pick our own electors. It doesn't really look like that's very likely to happen at this point, simply because the margin is so large right now in Pennsylvania I can't remember what it's up to now, somewhere around 50,000 votes mm -hmm. and, um, you know, much larger than any kind of recount territory too. And it's, you know, it's pretty unlikely that there, there's going to be any kind of contest that would really leave a question as to who won the state. And these electors are, are primarily people who are like party insiders. So, yeah, Parties mm -hmm. will pick them. The parties say, this, these are who are electors. So if the Republican Party should win our state, these are the people who would go as the electors, you know, who would be officially casting the vote, or Democrats, yeah. Greens, whoever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. It's mostly an honorary type thing, really. Okay. Yeah, but it would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, not exactly election related, but I wanted to see... Um, if any of you had any thoughts about this situation, Trump's been uh, replacing top officials at the Department of Defense. Uh, one report, I believe it might have been the New Yorker, had an article in the last week or so saying it appears that he's removing anyone who would refuse to follow an illegal order. Uh, today, it's being reported that uh, he is going against advice of some of the top military brass and planning to continue drawing down troops from Iraq and Afghanistan as a lame duck president. And also uh, it's being reported by the New York Times today that he has had discussions about whether or not he could do a nuclear strike on Iran. Are there any checks on Trump's power at this point? I mean, it's, we've seen how long it takes to try to do an impeachment. And it doesn't seem like that's something that you could do with someone in the last two months of their, uh, of their term. But is there anything that he can not do at this point? Is there anyone who can stop him from doing anything potentially dangerous at this point? 
his cabinet could stop him uh, with the 25th rough, Amendment, uh, you know, a incapacitated, uh, a mental incapacitation. I've been just re rereading uh, some books on narcissism because uh, this is a problem I've had in, in my own family uh, trying to deal with uh, narcissistic personality disorders and um, trying to refresh my memory on how, how that works and what narcissistic rage what the there's a term is. called narcissistic rage within this field of psychiatry yeah yeah so so yes if on the other hand um from a practical point of view uh, I, we we've seen so much uh, so so many people who are in positions of power not step up and exert responsibility for the protection of our democracy as i mentioned earlier um that i i don't have any reason to believe that they would step up now, even even when his behavior gets more and more irrational. But there is, in principle, there is a mechanism to have him uh, uh, against his will being denied the power of the presidency and have it turned over to the vice president, at least for a short period of time. Uh, I mean, there are several different mechanisms. At least one operates for about two days, and then there are others that could operate for a little longer. So the mechanisms are there if there's political will. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? I have one last question before. Okay. Kind of reminiscent of the end of the Nixon administration when he was under a lot of pressure because of Watergate and he, you know, would wander around the White House talking to the paintings of the departed presidents and was drunk. And there was a lot of fear that he could, do something kind of crazy. And uh, at that point, uh, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, not known to be any great peacenik, of course, but still he didn't want something, you know, really horrific to happen and, um, you know, was very well aware of it and probably would have tried to block something, um, you know. So, I mean, that's the closest that I can think of historically. Um, I, and you would hope that there are other people around President Trump from his family and also in the administration who would who would really try to resist anything truly dangerous. Not that things aren't dangerous already with the pandemic, but that's more of a slow, you know, burn dangerous rather than something bigger, quicker. Right. Well, we don't have time to get into it today because we're running out of time. I was going to ask about the possibility of Trump preemptively pardoning himself and his family, which uh, from the experts I've heard on various news programs is something that hasn't been ruled out. It doesn't sound like anybody's ever tried it before, uh, but it's something that may be a possibility. So maybe that'll be on the slate for next month. Maybe we'll see where things are at then. Remember, that's only, that's only for federal crime. So. Right. Right. State crimes yes. can still be prosecuted. Yeah, Southern District of New York, I think, has a stack of paperwork on their desk, from, like, judging from the uh, email blasts I get from them. So I hope you'll all uh, be able to join me again next month because I don't think we'll be done before the end of the year with this Elections 2020 series. I see lots of heads nodding. Um, in just the two minutes, literally two minutes that we have left, you want to each take 20, 30 seconds and uh, with any final last thoughts? Sure. I, I, I'd like to give a shout out to Colin Woodard's uh, recent analysis 
using his 11 Nations uh, a paradigm uh, that he's published in the Portland Press Herald. He's looked at the election outcome and uh, combined that with his analysis of, from his earlier book of, I think it was 2011, called The uh, uh, American Nations, in which he uh, analyzes the uh, election results. And I think it's well worth reading now. This is uh, Colin Woodard. I'll see if I can find a link to that and I'll post it in the archives. Who wants to go next quickly? I'll go. I just want to give a quick shout out to all of our election administrators here in the state. Um, A theme of this year was actually that Maine was not on the headline in the headlines for how our election was actually administered. And that is such a testament to the hard work of everyone here. That's exactly what you want. Um, so just want to say that one more time, just, you know, so impressed at all the hard work everyone across the state did. And the, and the, sorry, the fortitude of our voters, like record turnout in a pandemic, unbelievable um, determination on the part of our voters and resourcefulness as well as the election officials. Right, here, here. That was Ann Luther and Professor Amy Freed, you get the last word. Well, the point of all these elections is to govern and to pass policies, and we'll see what happens with that. Some of it is dependent on the Georgia Senate races, uh, because there's two of them coming up in early January, and uh, we'll see what what can actually be accomplished moving forward. And then people are also going to be having their eyes on the next election, the midterms of 2022. And hopefully that doesn't get in the way too much of people actually passing good legislation. All right. Well, thank you all very much for being with me again today and throughout this year. You've been listening to Maine Current's Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. It's the third Tuesday of the month. So this has been the Elections 2020 edition in an election season that just won't end. This show was recorded earlier today via Zoom. I'm Amy Brown, and my guests have been Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters of Maine and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU, and Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. The Democracy Forum airs on the third Friday of every month. Be sure to tune in and listen to that. All of our locally produced news and public affairs programs are archived at weru.org. So if you want to go back and check some of the past topics, if you miss one of our shows, or if you want to share one of them with a friend, you can find them there. Again, weru.org. You can contact us at news at weru.org if you have any questions for future editions, at least one future edition of this election's 2020 edition. Just put that in the subject line and send it to news at weru.org. Thanks to everyone who made a pledge last week to help keep this community resource going strong. We are you, and Maine Currents will be back on December 1st. Keep it tuned here to Community Radio WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at weru.org. We've got Radio Ego Shot coming up next unless you would like to uh, check out lwvme.org and find out about their Secretary of State forum coming up right as we wrap up tonight. Thanks again, everybody.